You're listening to Inside the Park with Marky Mark. Hey, yo, what's up? This is me, Marky Mark. And now, coming at you live from the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, here's your host, Mark Jean-Louis. And welcome back to a Thursday edition of Inside the Park with Marky Mark. We're, only, we're the only podcast here in the Pioneer Valley that covers all the bases. I'm your host, Mark Jean-Louis, and sitting next to me is an empty chair. So for the next 30 to 35 or maybe even 40 minutes, you're going to be listening to me talk about the world of sports, everything from Final Four to my dream NBA team, over to Darren Sharper and more. But before we get into any of that, I read this article, crazy article, that was uh, talked about by ESPN.com Sports Business reporter Darren Ravel the other day about how the Milwaukee Brewers have introduced something new as far as food is concerned to their Major League Baseball games. And... You know, when you think about it, it might sound crazy at first, but here, just hear me out on this one. You gotta listen to me. It's okay. It's a, uh, it's a stick. It's, it's a stick of beef loaded with refried beans, rolled in Doritos, and then deep fried and drizzled with sour cream and cheese. Uh, basically, what it's called, it's deep fried nachos stick. And, it's deep fried nachos on a stick. And um, now, I'm no, I'm, I know for all you health nuts out there, when you listen to that, you're thinking, oh my god, this has got to be the most disgusting, the most unhealthy food that you can ever bring to a ballpark. But honestly, I am ecstatic for this, for, uh, this uh, food to be, uh, to be offered here on the menus here at, for the Milwaukee Brewers. And, it, I mean, I, mean I, I certainly love nachos. I always have loved nachos. And as far as your typical ballpark food goes with hot dogs and, you know, soda and everything, I mean... Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a classic, but, you know, you can only have that for so long before you start to get really, really bored with it. And so the fact that I, the fact that Milwaukee here is going out on a limb to try something new here, I can't wait for this to, serve, to start showing up on the menu for the Milwaukee Brewers. I mean, I mean, at this point, I mean, it wouldn't even matter what, it wouldn't even matter to me, like, how much these, how much the Milwaukee Brewers want, would want to charge for this, whether they want to charge, I don't know, $15 or $20 or maybe even $45 for this mammoth, monstrosity, as people might want to call it on a stick, but hey, I mean, now you get to enjoy the game, the beer in one hand, and nachos on a stick in the other hand. You can't get any more better than that. I'm telling you right now, you're not going to get any better than this. And, of course, I'm saying this now, while probably next season they're probably going to get rid of it off the menu after everybody says they hate it. But, you know, next season, we're not there yet. We still have to get the 2015 season started underway. Now, to get into the rest of our sports talk here today, of course, we're still here in the midst of the NCAA tournament as we head into the Final Four. And before we start talking about the Final Four, making predictions and everything, I want to take a look back at the weekend that was last week um, with the Elite Eight and the Sweet 16. And when you really start to look at it all, um, some of the Sweet 16 matchups I wanted to talk about today were West Virginia and Kentucky. Of course, I got a lot to say about that. Then that was followed by North Carolina, Wisconsin, and how about this? Michigan State just sort of just coming out of nowhere, making a deep run all the way to the Final Four. Now, to start things off with West Virginia, Kentucky, if for people that may have missed it or may have been living under a rock during um, Sweet 16 matchup day, there was this kid on uh, West Virginia and goes by the name of Daxter Miles Jr., some freshman kid, some idiot decides to start running his mouth saying that Kentucky doesn't try hard, that they don't always put in their best effort, and that West Virginia was going to come in there, beat Kentucky, and that Kentucky would finish their season 36-1. and the final score of this game, get this, 78-39, to 39, Kentucky wins by 39 points. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, really, Daxter Miles Jr.? You decide to go run your mouth like an idiot and start saying, talking smack about Kentucky, saying, saying that they're going to lose and everything. 
And then here comes Kentucky, you know, just coming in all cool, calm, and collective. And they put you on beatdown. They put you on notice. They made you the poster boy. They exposed you. Every other word in the dictionary that you would want to use. And basically what it, what it really came down to is that they were too big, too strong, too physical for West Virginia. West Virginia, they shot 24% from the field. I believe that is now the lowest in NCAA tournament history. And I think the person who had to suffer the worst of this one was, of course, Daxter Miles Jr. And when you look at his box score, went 0 of 3 shooting from the field, 1 rebound, 0 points in 19 minutes. I, I think that really says it all there as far as Kentucky-West Virginia goes. Just an absolute dominating performance by the Kentucky Wildcats as they went to 37-0 and in that game. You move ahead to North Carolina-Wisconsin. It was a 7-point win for the Badgers, and... As, as dominant as the Badgers have been this season, they're probably arguably the second-best team in college basketball this year. This was one of those games where you felt that Wisconsin may be losing this game because you looked at it in the second half. You look up, and Wisconsin finds themselves down 53-46, and you thought that they were going to lose this game. But really what really carried them was the offense of Frank Kaminsky. Um, I'm sorry, not Frank Kaminsky. Sam Decker actually just really carried this offense even when Frank Kaminsky was struggling. He finished with 15 points, 6 rebounds. And went uh, six of eight shooting in the first half. Would finish the game with 23 points, 10 rebounds. What was then a career high for him. He would only match that. He would actually better that career high the following week against Arizona in the Elite Eight, where Sam Decker would score 27 points on eight of 11 shooting, five of six from three, five rebounds in 37 minutes. Here now. When I move ahead to the Elite Eight, one of the things that really scares me about this Wisconsin team was that they were able to light it up from downtown against Arizona. Get this. They shot 12 three-pointers in the game against Arizona. 12 three-pointers in the game against Arizona. We're, th- we're looking at Arizona, and we're thinking that Arizona's a very good defensive team, in which, in which Arizona is a very good defensive team, very physical. I thought one was one of the teams that could match up against Kentucky in the Final Four had they got that far. But, I mean, seriously, when you look at what Wisconsin was able to do in that game, they shot... 56, 55% from the field, and again, 12 of 18 from three. Whenever you shoot 12 three-pointers in a game, you are not going to lose that game. And now on the flip side of that, Notre Dame, Kentucky, a 68-66 win for the Wildcats. I, I got to give it up to Carl Anthony Towns on this one. He scored 25 points in that game, just basically dominated the second half of that game and carried the Wildcats on his back to bring him to a 38-0 record. 25 points on 10 of 13 shooting, five rebounds in all in just 25 minutes. But really, that game was just dominated by Notre Dame from the start to all the way about 38 minutes into the game. You have players like Zach August, Steve Astoria, Jerry and Grant, all of whom are a lot smaller than the Kentucky front court and most of the Kentucky backcourt for that matter. I think their tallest guy, Zach August, is about 6'8 or 6'9 or something like that. Yet you would see him time after time after time. Zach August, dunk to the basket. Jerry and Grant, dunk to the basket. Steve Astoria, dunk to the basket. Even Pat Connaughton, what's Pat Connaughton? Six three and a half, dunk to the basket. And you're thinking to yourself, how is it that Kentucky, one of the best defensive teams in the country, is just allowing so many easy trips to the basket? But, of course, a lot of credit has to be given in that game to Carl Anthony Towns. He was the one that really put the team on his back going down the stretch. Now, quickly, as I move ahead to the Final Four, these are some of the matchups I have to watch out for. Well, not what I have to watch out for, but matchups that I'm looking for in this game. Final Four, Final Four preview, you got Wisconsin, Kentucky. 
Can Wisconsin get hot from deep? Because I'm telling you, if Wisconsin shoots 12 three-pointers again against Kentucky, Kentucky will be seeing their first loss of the season. If Kentucky wants to win this game, they have to limit their turnovers, have to limit the mental mistakes, and they have to take advantage of their inside scoring because they're going up against one of the smartest teams in the country in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, they do not foul the ball. They do not turn the ball over. They are a very, very smart team. And I've been watching Kentucky all season long. They play a lot of idiot ball sometimes. Like, they have some of the most talented athletes in the country, but they, have play, they play so stupidly sometimes. I call it idiot ball. And as far as Michigan State-Duke is concerned, Michigan State, a team that a lot of teams, a lot of people have probably slept on a little bit. I certainly slept on them, too. Didn't have them making it anywhere past the Sweet 16. If Michigan State wants to win this game, Travis Trice and Denzel Valentine have to come alive in this game. And I'm not saying that they haven't. They certainly have been coming alive, especially with Travis Trice. I feel like any day now when Travis Trice is playing, he could score over 20. But I think if Michigan State wants to win this game, they have to force a lot of misses like they did against Louisville. It worked to a charm, going for them down the stretch in the second half in the overtime. Terry Rozier went 6-for-23 from the field. Quentin Snyder went 2-for-9. From the field, some of their better backcourt shooters didn't have a good day shooting. And for Michigan State, you got to make your free throws. You're going up against Duke University, one of the hottest offensive teams in the country. And so if you want to beat Duke University, you can't afford to leave points out on the floor. So that's why it's very important that Michigan State makes all their free throws against Duke. Moving along to the NBA now. Today, now, we got an email from a listener. I'm sorry, I should say I got an email from a listener. And they gave me a little bit of a fun challenge here. They said that they wanted to have me create my fantasy NBA starting roster from point guard to center using only players that are on current NBA playoff teams. So that means if the season were to end today, you can only use players that are on teams that would be making the playoffs. And the trick is that I can only use players that have been in the league for either five years or less. And so when I began to think about this, I had a lot of players to choose from from this. And so I finally got down to my final five, and I guess I'll start from the one at the point guard and move all the way down to five over at center. And let me just start things off with a point guard. And my point guard on this fantasy team would be John Wall from the Washington Wizards, of course, formerly of the University of Kentucky. And, of course, when I look at John Wall, now I know sometimes he's, a, he's an offensive point guard. And sometimes people don't value offensive point guards like they should. Sometimes they look down on that saying, oh, point guard shouldn't be scoring so many points. But when you look at John Wall, He's averaging 17.7 points a game, 9.8 assists a game, and has an assist-to-turnover ratio of 2.65. Now, that's almost as sure-handed as a point guard that I could ever want. Of course, I want to pick Steph Curry first, but, you know, Steph Curry, um, I believe he's now in his sixth season in the league, so he was ineligible. Things I like about John Wall, he's a consistent scorer, having his best shooting season of the year, shooting 44.9% from the field. He's a taller point guard at 6 feet 4. That's what I definitely like. So he can also, also defend the ball as well. And he has been fully healthy for the last two seasons. And so when you look at the point guard, a position that a lot of people compare to as the quarterback on a football field, definitely having a healthy point guard on your roster helps a long way. Moving up to the shooting guard at the two position, I had not Steph Curry, not one of the Splash Brothers, but the other Splash Brother, Clay Thompson. He's averaging 21.8 points a game this season. And as far as shooting guards goes, he's a bigger and more physical than, you know, your typical run-of-the-mill shooting guard. He stands 6 feet 7, 215 pounds, and he's been in the league for about four years now, and he's been progressively getting better on offense each and every single year. 
His rookie season averaged 12.5 points a game. That increased to 16.6 his second season, and then 18.4 points a game last season, and then this season at 21.8 points a game. He is a lethal three-point shooter, just much like Steph Curry is, shooting the ball at shooting the three ball at 43.4% this season. And in the postseason, he almost never misses a beat in the postseason. 15.6 points a game, 42.6% from the field, and shoots at almost 40% from three. Moving up now to the three, the swing man at small forward, Kawhi Leonard of the San Antonio Spurs. And when I got a chance to watch Kawhi Leonard in the NBA Finals, in the NBA Finals uh, last year and the year before, the, it, that's where I probably saw some of his greatest basketball. He has a ton of postseason experience, and in those postseason games, he's shooting better than 50% from the field, getting better than 12 points a game, and also getting a lot of rebounds out there as well, getting about seven rebounds a game. And with Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard, as far as the regular season is concerned, he is getting better scoring the ball and also getting better on the glass each season. He can also pass the ball. When, whenever it's needed, he can pass the ball and find the open guy when it's also needed when it's not him, when he can score the ball. And, like I said, a ton of postseason experience before. This season, averaging 16.2 points a game, 7.4 rebounds a game, shooting the ball at 46%. And at Power Forward, now I know a lot of people are going to probably groan at me for saying this one, but for at Power Forward, I chose Blake Griffin, fourth year out of Oklahoma. This season, even though he's missed a couple of games here and there, He's still averaging 22.1 points a game, over 7 rebounds a game. Now, I know, especially with the rebounding, his rebounding totals have been going down. But still, even if it's not rebounding, he does a lot of things well. He's averaging over 5 assists a game this season. So even when he's not open, he certainly is uh, proving himself as a bona fide passer. Not, Of course, not a bona fide passer like a point guard or anything like that. But he is showing himself that he is not a liability passing the ball. And he's still shooting the ball at over 50%. Of course, a lot of that you can credit to dunks, but hey, I'm not going to be the one here to discredit a dunk here in basketball. I love seeing it whenever it happens, and Blake Griffin does it the best out of anyone that I can remember in recent past. He still logs in a lot of minutes, averaging 35.3 points a game, and with his postseason experience, shooting 49% from the field, 6.8 rebounds a game, 3.1 assists a game, and close to 20 points a game. Can't argue with those numbers. And at center, I have Jonas Valanciunas. From Toronto, a guy that maybe a lot of people forget about his second year out of Lithuania. And I, I know offensively he's not exactly the best center that you want out there, but hey, he's still putting up 12.1 points a game, 8.7 rebounds a game, and getting better than one block a game. And what's really more important for me with a guy like Jonas Valanciunas is that he's consistently improving, his, improving when it comes to scoring the ball, consistently getting better. I think he only had about 8 points a game last year, but this season, now he's over at about 12 points a game, and he looks to be getting better shooting the ball. He's a great free throw shooter, which is starting to become a rare find to come with, especially with big men out there. Hint, hint, DeAndre Jordan. And he's good from the field, shooting better than 56% from the field, and like I said, averaging 12.1 points a game. Now, I guess the one downside about uh, Jonas Valanciunas is that he does not play a lot of minutes, which to some people can be as a, a little bit of a liability, but you know, when he's in the game, he is still a very impactful player, and as far as young centers go, centers that have been in the league for less than five years, I couldn't pass him up on Joel, on Jonas Valanciunas. It's break time, and after the break, Massachusetts Daily Collegian women's lacrosse correspondent Jesse Corzin joins the desk to talk some minute women lacrosse, what they've done, what lies ahead, and his opinions on the program as a whole. All that and more head on Inside the Park with Marky Mark. 
Hello and welcome to the newest edition of UMass Sports Weekly, your source for UMass sports. If you look at an 0-3, but if they close out those last two games, they could be easily be 2-1. and We could be having a completely different discussion. But another thing that he strategized on was defense, defense, defense. And the offensive line is finally stepping up this season. They've really showed that they can do what it takes to win a game. And you have Hoskinen who can swing up this way right into the slot while Eichel drives to the net creating a 2-1-0 in front of Steve Masterless. That can't happen and the Minutemen need to fix that. If you want a chance of winning these games, you have to make sure that the ball gets at the feet of those three players that I just mentioned. And this game was like watched Titanic. It was very entertaining, but you knew how it was going to end. Be sure to check out UMass Sports Weekly Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. only on UVC TV 19. Oh boy, that's a great goal. Shot in the goal for the minute women. Largest lead of the day for UMass, 8-3 to the score. Welcome back to Inside the Park. I'm now joined on the show by Massachusetts Daily Collegian women's lacrosse correspondent Jesse Corzin for the Six Minute Man. To catch you up on all things UMass Women's Lacso, Jesse, it's great to have you on here today. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, uh, Jesse, it's the first time on this show where we've spotlighted UMass Women's Lacrosse, and for some of us here on campus, they may not exactly know that all that of all the 19 varsity sports that we have here on this university, Women's Lacrosse is actually one of the top programs here, and this season seems to be going pretty well for this team, as the, as the Minute Women most recently came off a 17-7 uh, to victory over George Mason. So, Jesse, with that, tell us where this team is at now this season. Yeah, you know, they're at a great place, uh, you know, being 9-1, and coming off of a big win against George Mason, which was 17-7, to uh, a truly dominant game, you know. Uh, they were winning 10-2 to in the first half. Um, the, the UMass team is, is definitely strong defensively, and it's great to see the UMass offense strive. Uh, they scored 12, uh, 12 different people scored in this game, uh, which really shows how uh, dangerous this team really can be. Um, basically, since they are a defensive team, it's great, um, especially at this time, to catch fire, um, especially going up against St. Bonaventure, which is a weak defensive team. And, you know, it's really interesting because I was actually there for a little bit on a Saturday watching this team take on George Mason. And I didn't get a chance to stay for all the game as much as I would have liked to. But, I mean, as, when I left the game, the score was about 8 to nothing. UMass leading over George Mason. I'm thinking to myself, like, seriously? Like, this George Mason team has absolutely no chance at coming away with a victory in this one. But, you know, it's actually sort of interesting I say that because that actually leads into what I want to talk about next. And that's really this whole perceived notion of UMass being a really good team. And... You know, when you start to look at, you know, this team's record over the years, at first glance, it's really no doubt that this team is exceptionally good at what they do. But you also have to remind yourself that UMass does play in the Atlantic 10. They don't often play teams from power conferences such as the ACC or the Big 10. I actually just looked at this a little bit before the show. If you look at the poll, I think the Big 10 or the, sorry, the, the ACC for that matter, they believe they have four teams that are ranked in the top 10. And... 
As it stands right now, there are no ranked Atlantic 10 teams in women's lacrosse. Massachusetts is the closest. They have received a couple of votes in the latest poll. The Minute women have, in fact, lost their last four games against ranked opponents. So, Jesse, is it really that this team is good, or is it just because they're good in a relatively weak conference? You know, Mark, any team that could win 40 straight A-10 contestants, you know, definitely is a great team. I've watched them play, uh, as I said again, such a strong defensive team, you know, led by Rachel, uh, Rachel Valerelli, totally solid uh, in the net. And, I mean, you surround her with, you know, the Twins, the Farnham Twins. When you have one player at their level of, of capability, it's great. But they literally have two of the exact same person. They, they, they look like they're, they're working together so well, and it just really makes the defensive um, threat just so strong. Um, and as I said, UMass just really knows how to win, and that's what it comes down to. Five years under um, Coach McMahon, McMahon's team, she really knows how to coach them, and that's what it comes down to, winning games, and they know how to win. And all they need to do is worry about winning their conference, and that's their ticket uh, into the NCAA, double to- uh, NCAA tournament. And that's really all they need to worry about, and I am honestly confident that they can make um, uh, an impact on this tournament with the skill that they have. Um, offensively, they're so... You know, they disperse their goals so well, like I said, 12 people scoring in one game. Um, and I really think we're going to look forward to uh, seeing Hannah Murphy, um, Erica Ipe, Katie Ott, you know, and plenty of the other team, uh, team members to really just continue to score goals. And they're really making their offensive threat noticeable instead of just being known as a defensive team. All right. Well, it's good to know that you think that this uh, UMass women's team is actually legitimately good because, you know, you compare it to, I compare it a little bit to men's basketball. You look at this Gonzaga team. Gonzaga is a team in the West Coast Conference. You know, they probably made to the NCAA tournament 17, 18 times in a row. I can't exactly tell you which. But you also look at their comp- the conference that they play in. Here's Gonzaga, and then here's the next competitive team, which is BYU. There really is really no correlation as to those two being really close to each other and so it would it would almost hurt me on the inside to you know hear people say about this UMass team well, oh well they're just good because they don't well they're just good because they don't play anyone that's really any good in their conference and I don't want people to, you know exactly to question the the talent and the ability of this UMass team but you know looking ahead the team's next game will be Saturday against St. Bonaventure on the road in New York and the Bonnies are, well, pretty dismal. They, are win- they were winless last season, and they entered this season at 1-9. Their only win against St. Francis in Pennsylvania. Not exactly even sure if that's a Division One team. Last season, the Minute Women scored 21 on the Bonnies. So, Jesse, is there really anything to worry about for UMass this Saturday? You know, you look at a, a team like St. Bonaventure, you know, 1-9, you think it's going to be another blowout. And, and honestly, it could be. Um, the way the UMass team is playing, it, it really can. Um, but you can't look past a team that, you know, is scoring 103 goals in 10 games. They are an offensive threat led by uh, Michaela Place with 18. The girl's got a 60% shot percentage. She's definitely a threat. And they do have six players that have double digits in scoring, where UMass only has three. Um, That being said, the defensive play for, for the Bonnies has been, like you said, dismal. It is you know, they gave up 157 goals in 10 games and an average of 15.7 games uh, goals. You, you let the, 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 a team like UMass against that team. Defensively, you hope they could shut them down. And offensively, look for a big day from people again like, you know, Hannah Murphy, who was coming off of a four-goal game, uh, four game. You know, it, it looks like it could be a blowout. 
And uh, I know you were talking about this earlier. I mean, certainly I'm expecting a blowout, too, from the St. Bonaventure team. Now, you were talking earlier before the segment about, you know, the accomplishments that uh, the head coach of this UMass women's lacrosse team has been able to do recently. So you just want to dive into that for a little bit? Yeah, you know, uh, I've, I've talked to Coach, uh, you know, Angela a lot this season. And, you know, I'm very impressed with what I've heard from her. She really knows exactly what she's doing. She actually celebrated her 100th career win. And now she's actually going to be coaching for the Italian team. So, you know, she she is a great coach. She knows what she's doing. She's coaching a great team. And I really expect this team to really do great things, you know, come you know come later in the season. You know, got to give the biggest shout-out to Coach Angela, like you said. Certainly not every day where you see a coach going over to Italy to coach, you know, a startup national team over there. And as far as the minute women go, as far as their next game is concerned, um, you can never really extinguish the hopes of the upset-minded St. Bonaventure. Have it written down here. St. Bonaventure's last win over UMass gets to go all the way back to 2009 for that one. A 14-13 victory at home for the Bonnies like you were talking about. You know, the Bonnies, a very good offensive team, just not really so great defensively. But, you know, anything can happen. Jesse, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Now, to read more on the UMass women's lacrosse team, be sure to visit the Daily Collegian website at www.dailycollegian.com. And after the break, I'll finish up with a reflection on the former NFL player and now current convict, that is Darren Sharper. How could such a phenomenal player go on such a downward spiral? Stay tuned. This is Inside the Park with Marky Mark. Welcome back to Inside the Park with Marky Mark. I'm your host, Mark Jean-Louis, and now we get into some NFL talk. The NFL, again, has taken a recent blow to its reputation recently with what has happened to Darren Sharper. On March 23rd, Sharper pled guilty to sexual assault in Arizona and no contest in California to raping two women he knocked out with a potent sedative mixed with alcohol. He was sentenced to nine years in prison, and one year ago, he was officially charged with two counts of rape and five related felony counts. All in all, he received nine years in a plea deal for all nine charges against him, in addition to the year he has already served. He was sentenced to 20 years in the state of Louisiana for the multiple rapes he committed there. And, I mean, when it comes to Darren Sharper, of course, what he did was wrong. Certainly wrong. I do not condone rape, or I should probably say many of us probably here don't condone rape or sexual assault of any sort. And we could talk forever about exactly how he did wrong and that, you know, Darren Sharp is a bad guy or whatever, whatever it is we want to call it. But I feel like a lot of us would come to a mutual agreement that, you know, okay, you know, Darren Sharper did wrong. He shouldn't have done this. He's going to jail. He deserves what he got. But really, I mean, what really bothers me about Darren Sharper was that he was seemingly such a good person, quote unquote, in the NFL. And so... When the news broke out with this, I mean, when the news broke out that Darren Sharp was involved in this sort of thing, I was a little bit taken back by this just because I never really saw it coming. 
when you look at Darren Sharper and the kind of player he was in his career, he was arguably one of the greatest defensive backs in Green Bay Packers history. And I guess when it comes to my thoughts on Darren Sharper and his back in his career, and what I remember the most from Darren Sharper, here's what I remember most of the Darren Sharper. It's not the serial rapist. It's not the guy with the nine counts of sexual assault. It's the five-time Pro Bowler, the six-time All-Pro, the Super Bowl 44 champion, and the man that was on the NFL 2000s All-Decade team. And I look at a guy that has overcome a lot of adversity all throughout his career, even going back to when he started off in college at Division I AA at the College of William & Mary. And... I guess really he just tore it up in Division One AA. Tore it up so much that he got drafted in the second round of the 1997 NFL Draft. And you know, for a Division One AA player to be drafted so high, I, I know second round. So you know, there were probably 59 guys, 59, 60, 61 guys that went ahead of him. He was taken at the end of the second round. But still, for a Division One AA player to be taken at the end of the second round, that's something right there. That means he beat out a whole bunch of other. Division 1A players that probably had quote-unquote better seasons than he did. But, I mean, aside from that, his rookie season, 1997, he had two interceptions returned for a touchdown that year. And, I mean, really from there, it just sort of just took off from him. 98 and 99, he started all 32 games those season in his second and third years in the NFL and recorded 186 tackles as a safety. And so, I, I guess you don't want your safety rec necessarily recording that many tackles, but still, the fact that he was in there on every single down for every single game, that says a lot to me about, you know, just the intensity and the grit and just his character on the field. And then you move ahead to 2000, 2001, 15 interceptions there. 2002 to 2004, he had 16 interceptions during those three seasons. And it was around this time where you started to see almost the decline a little bit of uh, Darren Sharper. And I guess the Green Bay Packers realized that, too, to the point where he got released. And, well, not released, I should say. He was, he was traded in the conference. That's another thing. You never really trade in the conference, no matter how much you think a player is declining. He was traded to the Minnesota Vikings in 2005. And even the, being traded at 30 years old now, it's, it was almost like a revitalizing period for Darren Sharper. Here he is again, 2005, plays in 14, just 14 games that season, records nine interceptions, and scores two touchdowns on defense. So, again, with a new team, it's almost like he revitalized himself and made the Pro Bowl that season. From 2006 to 2008, he started to go back a little bit to the Darren Sharper of old, only recording nine interceptions total during those three seasons. And as an unrestricted free agent after that season... You know, he signed on with New Orleans in 2009. And 2009, with a brand-new team, it was almost like another revitalizing period for him. He recorded nine interceptions again that year. Three of those interceptions were returned for touchdowns. And it was during that season, you know, 12 season, 12-13 season in the league, where he was finally rewarded with a Super Bowl victory over the Indianapolis Colts at Super Bowl 44. I, re I remember I was watching that Super Bowl, and, you know, Darren Sharper... You know, just I, I had watched him all the way from Green Bay to Minnesota, and I always remember, you know, playing as a Green Bay Packers in my Madden 2005-2004 video game, and he was there, one of my favorite defensive backs to use in that game. And, and, and so when I look at the career of Darren Sharper, before I knew of all these sexual assault and all these rape allegations he had, he was almost like a hero to me in a little bit. I mean, you look at a guy, again, coming from a Division I AA college, had to overcome a lot of adversity, had to start over with two different franchises, and over the course of his career, he was tied for seventh in career interceptions, had 63 career interceptions, which is one less 
than Ed Reed. And, you know, you look at Ed Reed, people are already starting to talk about him as one of the greatest safeties of all time. And his 63 interceptions are still more than Hall of Famers Aeneas Williams, Daryl Green, and Deion Sanders. He's also tied for second with career touchdowns for career interceptions that were returned for touchdowns. He has 11 of those, which is still just one behind the legendary, the legendary Rod Woodson. And so now that the fact he's going to be going away to jail for the next 20 years, for 20 years tacked onto the nine years that he already has, you know, for all the uh, rape and uh, sexual assaults charges that he has got against him, it, it really just shocked me. As you know, as surprising or not as that may be to to have me say that, I still was just shocked from him. He was just from what he did on the field. I felt like you know he was a player, like almost like a role model as to what players should look for to be in the National Football League. And you know now that the fact that he's going away to jail for all this for all these things he's done, not only has he probably damaged his Hall of Fame reputation, but you know it just sort of just puts another black mark on the NFL. In the world of sports, we come to expect winners and losers. And today on Inside the Park, the winner of the week goes to the head coach of the Kentucky Wildcats men's basketball team, Mr. John Calipari. On Tuesday, the 56-year-old was named the National Coach of the Year by the National Association of Basketball Coaches for the third time in his career. He also won it in 2009 with Memphis and 1996 with UMass. This probably comes to, to no one's surprise that he won it again this year, but here's a fun fact. Calipari led both Memphis and UMass to 26-0 starts during those seasons, 2009 and 1996. And this season, he is now 38-0, still in pursuit of being the first coach since Bobby Knight in 1976 to coach an undefeated team. But with winners, there are always losers. And today, our loss of the week goes out to Angela Spoonamore. The 29-year-old Kentucky fan was arrested on Saturday night after allegedly giving her one-year-old nephew beer and rum as she celebrated the Wildcats' 68-66 win over Notre Dame. Spoonamore said she was drunk and doesn't remember being arrested. You know, I really wonder if she remembered that she referred to the baby as her niece. Newsflash, it was your nephew. And I know, Kentucky fans, you were really excited about, you know, having one of the greatest comeback victories of your lives against Notre Dame, but seriously giving a one-year-old baby rum and beer. You've got to learn to control yourselves. It's going a little bit far. Honestly, I say this all. I feel like I've seen everything now in the world of sports. And I'm probably going to be saying this again next week and the week after and the week after, but really today I have seen everything in the world of sports. And now it's time for our segment called The Closer, where I get one minute to answer you, the listeners' questions, emailed to the show at itpmarkymark at outlook.com. Today, I've got four questions, and without further ado, here goes the first one. The god of Connecticut women's basketball, Gina Oriyama, says that the men's game is too low-scoring and far behind the times. What are my thoughts on this? Well, you know, Gino, I could voice my opinions on the state of the women's college basketball game and what I think about that, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that, and so I would appreciate it if you would keep your mouth shut on the state of the men's game as well. Wichita State is working on a new deal to keep head coach Greg Marshall. Do I think Marshall should stay with the Shockers? Absolutely. Not only is it because that the Shockers are the best team in the Missouri Valley Conference, and it looks like it's going to be like that for a long time, he probably recruited the best backcourt in the nation with Fred Van Vliet and Ron Baker. I think it's only fair that you stay for them for at least their last year in college. The Sacramento Kings are planning to sign 7 feet 5 center Sim Boulard to a 10-day contract. Am I excited to see this? Absolutely. So I'm playing the NCAA tournament last year. 
I saw him playing at a small school. I'm always excited for that. And tonight, the Miami Heat take on LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers in, in Cleveland. Do I foresee a Heat victory? No, I don't. You know, Cleveland has LBJ, Timothy Mozgov, Kyrie Irving. The talent on that team is just seemingly endless on that team. I think it's too much for Miami to overcome. I have the Cavaliers winning it. And that'll do it for me. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to the Inside the Park with Marky Mark Podcast free on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark underscore G93. That's M-A-R-C underscore J-E-A-N 93. Like the Inside the Park with Marky Mark page on Facebook. And if you have any questions you'd like email to the show, send them over to ITPMarkyMark at Outlook.com. That's it for Inside the Park with Marky Mark. I'm your host, Mark Jean-Louis. I'll be back in a few more days. Until then, take care, watch the final four, and thank you for listening.